ladies and gentlemen, we've got a uh, fantastic guest on the Kurzweil podcast, episode 15. Today, we have from Gearbox Express, the VP of operations, John McKay, who graciously accepted an invite to come on to the Kurzweil podcast, again, episode 15. Quick background on Gearbox Express. I think there's about three people in total in the entire industry who's not heard of Gearbox Express. And honestly, that number might be a little bit higher uh, than, than I've just stated. So, or sorry, lower part of me. Gearbox Express, quick intro, is the only independent company in North America solely focused on providing down tower wind gearbox remanufacturing solutions. They've actually recently moved into a new 80,000 square foot facility in McQuantico, Wisconsin's new industrial park, where they focus strictly on gearboxes and they know how to keep them running. Quick backstory, I have been able to go to the facility in Wisconsin. It is incredible. And I'd be willing to eat my breakfast off the floor in there every time that I go visit. So first of all, John, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We really appreciate you being a guest. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Appreciate it. John, I want to hop right into it actually here and uh, talk about you and your background. We'll talk about Gearbox Express uh, here in a little bit. But first, could you walk us through how uh, John McKay, I'm, I'm sure you played football growing up, you know, junior high, middle school, high school. How did someone like you with your, your uh, growing up background, how did you end up in the wind industry in the first place? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, get that, I get that a lot, right? Uh, how, how'd you end up? here. Um, you know, it's one of those things. I was in the military and uh, wasn't even looking at renewables as a thing. You know, um, growing up, um, you know, you have, you know, there might be one wind turbine somewhere in the middle of nowhere and nobody knows about it and they call it a windmill or, or whatever it is. Um, it, but nobody really knows how to get into it. Um, and then solar, you know, solar was kind of all over the place, but again, nobody really knows how it's, it's this thing that just kind of exists, but there's no real substance or context to it. Um, I was getting out of the military and I was a part of a wounded warrior program and they, they had this email group, uh, you know, for, for guys getting out, they wanted, you know, they wanted people to, uh, to, um, submit their resumes to this, like, uh, this, this job generator kind of thing. Right. So I had my name, my, my email in this group and I get an email from a guy named Dave Grant, who was the, uh, he was the director of operations, remote operations for BP, um, BP wind at, uh, at Houston. And so I get this email, uh, come across, um, and it's, it's him and he's asking, he's looking for guys, you know, to come, basically come out of the military to work in, in the 24 seven, uh, in the operations center in Houston. And I'm thinking, I, I got this email direct. I'm like, I don't even know who this guy is. You know, I don't even know what this is. And I think, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, he's asking me to come work for him. You know, I, I'm a naive guy, never really been in a civilian workforce, been in the military my whole career, you know, my whole life, basically. And so I respond back to him like, yeah, I'm your guy. You know, I'm your guy. You know, I sell myself, man. I'm, dude, I'm the bee's knees, man. Nice. And, um, so he, he emails me back and uh, he's like, you know, let's set something up. So I'm living in Virginia at the time. We set something up. I fly down to Houston, do my job interview and come to find out some, something happened. And I got the email 
he didn't say, apparently his email didn't make it to the right people. And I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> so <laughs> I got in the wind, man. That was my first gig was, was a, a 24 seven operator uh, working for BP out of Houston. You know, we had, um, we had just a few sites at the time. Uh, we had Edom Hill. Uh, we had Silver Star. Uh, those are Clipper sites. Um, and then we started, we, we had uh, Fowler Ridge coming on in Indiana. And we had Flat Ridge in Kansas. And then we brought on a bunch of different wind farms uh, over, the, over the time that I was there. But that was my first gig. That's how I got into wind on an accident email. <laughs> that's, it. that's how I got into it, man. It was awesome. I was like Googling, what is SCADA? What is, yeah, I totally know what that is. I had no idea. I had no idea. No way. So the way that you got into wind was an email misdirected to you. You picked yep. up your stuff in Virginia. Yep. You went to BP in Houston yep. and sold yourself in the interview process with no background in renewables and got not, the job. Not a drop. I mean, I had power generation. I understand power generation from my time in the military. So, so the, the technical side of like how, you know, what's happening, I understood all that, you know, so technically I was there. Um, but in terms of like renewables, you know, wind turbine, all that stuff, complete <laughs> foreign, foreign language. But, um, you know, but I was willing to learn, um, you know, and I, I, I had four children. Uh, I was getting retired from the military and had, you know, basically no plan. I uh, didn't know what to expect. Uh, a, a lot of, you know, my time in the military ending was, was fairly abrupt. Um, and so I had no real plan and no, you know, I was in scramble mode, right? So you're willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to, to provide for your family. And I'm so grateful that Dave, Dave's email landed in my inbox and I responded, right? And everything else from there is on you, right? You, you got to go out there and you got to, you know, you got to sell yourself and, you know, and land the job. And then, you know, the biggest part, now you got to perform it, right? So yeah, no pressure. <laughs> right. Uh, but they did a great job, man, that I will forever be indebted and grateful to the BP win team. You know, um, all the guys that, that are still there and all the guys that have, you know, that have come and gone and worked for other companies. Now I still, I, I'm in touch with, I stay in touch with those guys. Um, you know, I'm super grateful for the opportunity and the experience that I gained while I was there. I mean, they really set me up for success. Um, and, and helped me and allowed me to, you know, to grow my, to, you know, to grow my skill set and, and my love for the industry. That's, uh, first of all, thank you so much for your, your military service. I do want to point that out. Um, and, and I think it's, it's crazy how you ended up at BP. And you're also, it sounds like maybe dealing with clipper turbines, um, which are, are pretty unique in the way that they were designed and built. And now you own a gear ma gearbox, sorry, a remanufacturing facility. I, I'd like to, and this is a little bit of a curveball. Have you discussed the, the Clipper setup? How, how were Clippers different from your stock, let's say GE 1X or 2X uh, uh, turbine that you see out in the field today? Yeah. So, I mean, right out of the gate, you know, Clippers have four high-speed shafts. So instant, instant difference, right? Uh, standard from day one and wind until let's bypass Clipper until today. There's one gearbox and there's one generator. Clipper said, hold my beer. We're going <laughs> to generators on one gearbox. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it, you know, it is what it is. Um, I, you know, we're, we're set up 
we're set up to uh, to do Clipper gearboxes. Actually, as a matter of fact, our facility, uh, this facility that we're currently in, was built around the concept of Clipper gearboxes and gearboxes that are of the same size as Clipper, right? So the the Mitsubishi 2.4, you know, some of the ICOF stuff that in the the Symbion MM92, uh, you know, Nordex. Um, the big Vestas units, the big Atlas gearboxes and, and such, you know, we can handle all that stuff here. So we had Clipper in mind, you know, when we initially built this stuff um, and built and spec'd out our shop, 60 ton cranes, um, you know, so, so in, in terms of material movement and handling, we were, we're more than capable of doing it. That's why we did it. Um, but the difference, <laughs> the difference in Clipper, uh, they, they really went out on a, on a limb there uh, in their in their engineering. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure what they were after, uh, but they achieved it. I mean, they got it. They, there's several Clippers out there uh, that are chugging away. Um, I wouldn't have done it <laughs> that way, but uh, you know. But hey, they they did it uh, and they made it happen. And there's still there's there's still some Clippers in operation today. So. There are. As a matter of fact, I was looking at a few sites this morning, including your Fowler Ridge uh, BP yep. shout out that you gave earlier. Um, they yep. are unique machines. I've had some conversations with people uh, in the industry like Steven Steen from Poseidon, who I think you know, and, yep. and he actually worked yep. at Clipper. And um, the design concept was unique. And I think it takes some of these manufacturers to go out on a limb and try new things as we continue to press the industry forward. So while it didn't necessarily pan out uh, long-term for Clipper, I, I do like the concept of continuously innovating and rethinking the way that you actually approach wind as a whole. Yeah, you have to get outside of your box, man. You, you have to, if you, if if you want to grow anything and you have passion about growth and you have passion for continuous improvement and stuff like that, you have to think outside the box. You, everybody can make a gearbox and a generator. Anybody can do that. The, 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 the footprint is there. You know, it doesn't take much to, to figure that out, right? How do, you, how do you make it better, right? So you're going to make mistakes. If you say you're not, then you're not trying hard enough, right? If, you're not, if there's not a failure somewhere along the line, you're not, doing, you're not putting your best foot forward. So, I mean, kudos to those guys, to that whole team. Um, they did something. Um, they, they did make it work. You know, it, it's not the best. But it's something, right? So who knows what's going to come out of this, right? There's, I'm sure there's somebody right now, you know, uh, storyboard and putting stuff together for, for the next, you know, for the next best thing. And it's, it's a result of stuff like that. Those guys who, who threw it on the line and said, this is what we're going to do. You know, a lot of people can sit back and talk trash about it, but they did it. They did it. And, and kudos to them. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an evolution, right? That's the, you know. That's something new that nobody's ever seen before. Oh, I would agree 100%. And, and when I think of innovation and pressing the industry forward, I have to give you guys a shout out at Gearbox Express. I want to hear a little bit more about your origin story. So you had mentioned anybody can design a gearbox or a generator, but there is a lot of nuance and thought and storyboarding that goes into it. Could yeah. you talk to me about how Gearbox Express which was originated? What was the original goal? Um, you know, what was the need that you saw in the industry at the time of uh, the Genesis story, I guess, of Gearbox Express? Yeah. So, I mean, like, so there was three, there was three guys that started the company, right? Um, and, and, and basically that comp, the idea behind, behind starting the company was that there has to be something better for the industry, right? Um, wind, 
is a new, it's a new industry, right? It's still, we're still pretty much in our infancy, right? We're still seeing some of the, you know, first megawatt class turbines are still in operation are still being worked on the, you know, there's hell, if you go to Palm Springs, California, you can see stuff from the eighties. That's like, you know, first generation stuff that's still running. Right. Um, so we, the guys that started the company knew that there had to be something better out there. And by and large, the, the, the OEMs, they, there was no competition there. There was no reason to, to get better. Right. They, they said, this is the line that we're going to set. And there, there's no competition. So why push yourself to do anything else, right? Well, that's great in the beginning, but, but we're not in the beginning anymore. Yeah, we're still a young industry, but we're not in the beginning. So in 2000, you know, 2010, when they, were, when they were getting this stuff together, the wind industry was rolling, right? Um, and customers are just getting taken advantage of. Like wind farm owners and operators just get taken advantage. You don't have an option. You have to come back to me every time you're captive, right? And they knew that. And, and so they basically said, you know, we're going to figure we're going to figure out an, an option, you know, for that customer, for that wind farm owner operator to go to uh, in the event that, that you want change, you want something different, right? Things break, period. It happens. They're mechanical, they're electrical, they're going to break and it's going to break whenever it wants to. And I don't care what your degree says, it's going to break whenever it wants to, right? Um, and so because of that, these guys said, we're going to figure out how it breaks and why it breaks. And we're going to fix that. That's what we're going to fix. We're not just going to fix, we're not going to repair it. We're, you know, we're not going to, um, we're not going to put a bandaid on it and send it back out to you. Anybody can do that. Like I said earlier, right? Anybody can make a repair, take it apart, put it back together again. Can you do it better than it was? That's the key, right? That's the, that's the secret sauce. Can you do it better than it was and warranty it and stand behind your work, stand behind your workmanship, stand behind the material that you choose to use. Okay. That's what Gearbox Express was founded on. That's what we, that's what they have had done. And that's what we are doing today. And we're constantly looking for ways that we can improve what's already there. Right. Um, things are going to fail. We're going to find what that failure is and we're going to reverse that failure out and make it better, make it more robust. And we're going to warranty it. We're going to put a warranty on there that the OEMs aren't going to stand behind on their own stuff. We're going to be better than them. And we are better than them. And it, it takes time and it takes, it takes some training and it takes, you know, it takes trust on the customer side for them to understand what we do and why we're doing it and what we offer. What, you know, what's the value add to, to them, right? And so that the value add is that you're not, you're not going to have that gearbox fail the same way that it failed before. Right. The idea is that it doesn't fail at all because we know what the what the failures are. They're the same every time. Right. We've made that better. And, we, you know, we've, we've made the improvements there. I love how you mentioned value add. And I think it's a great point in this conversation to maybe discuss the difference between the repair process and remanufacturing. Um, I, I think it's it's something in the industry that needs to be emphasized a little bit more is just talking about the difference between remanufacturing and repair. You've sort of already covered it, but I'd love for you to go a little bit more in depth about remanufacturing versus repair and maybe even give an example, if you're willing, about what yeah. you guys have been able to do to maybe find some of these common failure modes and then reverse engineer them out. Yeah, so I mean, so the the being brand agnostic here or being model agnostic, you know, 
we see all all different types of gearboxes. We see different, you know, from from different wind turbines and then from different gearbox manufacturers. We've seen everything, literally everything. We put our hands on it. Um, have we put it out in volume and you know in a serial production? Fact, not not on all of them, but on a lot of them we do. We we have and, and we're currently supporting you know you know the fleet now. Um, the difference between repairing something and and reverse engineering it or uh or you know remanufacturing it is that when something fails you can say hey this bearing failed i'm going to replace that bearing you know i'll, I'll take the bad bearing off put the put the new bearing on and send it back out okay so it's repaired great the remanufacturing process is why did it fail did it fail because it's poor quality? Did it fail because it's got loose tolerances? Did it fail because it wasn't tested? It wasn't, you know, truly, you know, truly proven. And, you know, did they not use sealants or they should have? Did they not use, you know, seals where they should have? Did they not? There's, a, there's several things that, that come into play, right? Um, and so changing up the material that you use, you know, are you using good, you know, clean, the highest, you know, the highest quality clean steel are you using, you know, the, the best bearings that are out there? Um, have you had an engineering firm, your own, or, you know, another engineering firm review the numbers that you're looking at, the tolerances, the fits? You know, is there a slop in the bearing? All of these things need to be asked. They need to be addressed when you're dealing with stuff like this. There's a lot of load that, you know, that transfers, you know, between the wind turbine blade and to make the generator spin. That gearbox is that. There's a lot of things that take place in there. Uh, your geometry has to be right. Your math has to be on point um, to be able to, to, to stand behind a product. And that's what we do here. We're not just throwing a new bearing on, right? We're changing the type of material that, that, that you do have in your, in your gearbox. And we have a cleaner, you know, a better steel. Uh, the same with the bearings, you know, the same with the lubrication system. You know, we're looking at these things from a, from a value add point of view, if, if I'm spending this much, you know, this, this much money on something, I want to know that I have the best and they're, and whoever that is, is going to stand behind it. Right. That's what we do here. Um, and th there is a difference between the repair and the remanufacture. One thing that you had mentioned there, John, that, that I jotted down is um, remanufacturing looks at the why. And I think that's right. a really important point to really reiterate yeah. here is not just replacing the same bearing like for like, you know, if the bearing right. is the failure or, or it could be any other component within the gearbox or the main shafts that you guys actually do remanufacture. Um, yeah. but, but I do want to drill into, again, if you're willing to share just your common process, maybe just a general overview of, hey, you've got this new three megawatt turbine right. that just came out. It's your first gearbox. How do you guys diagnose the why behind the first failure that you see within your facility? Yeah, so um, to be honest with you, on the you know, unless it's unless it's something that's obvious or we have feedback, you know, voice a customer that says, "Hey, I have a fleet of these, you know, these gearboxes. This is the failure that we're seeing." Um, typically, on the first go round, what we do is we have a team of disassembler disassembly technicians. And, and engineers, mechanical engineers. And what we'll do is we'll piece by piece, right? We'll take this thing apart and, you know, every bolt, you know, every fastener, every hard, you know, lubrication line, you know, every V-ring, every O-ring, every seal, what type of sealant, you know, basically we, we, we take it all the way apart and we list everything, we measure everything up 
Um, and then we, you know, then we start to develop, this is the bill of material that is in this gearbox, right? So then you start looking at the grade of the bolts. Is it 8.8? Should it be 10.9, 12.9? You know, what kind of strength do we need here? Is it, you know, all of those things. And then, uh, and then you start looking at when you get into the internals, you know, do you have gear teeth that have liberated, you know, that have broken off? What caused that? Was it a secondary failure? Where's the main fit? You know, all of these things get looked at, um, not only on a first time disassembly, but in our disassembly process in general. Typically, you know, once we, is something that we do serially, you know, the, the standard Moventus gearbox, right, an 1100.2. Um, we know what that, we know the material that's in there, but we still fine tooth comb everything. So when we start disassembling that, you know, we're looking for cracks, you know, in the ring gear register. We're looking for cracks in the ring gear, liberated teeth. We're looking for uh, bearing debris that it may have fallen down and worked its way in the gear mesh. You know, we do that on every, on every uh, gearbox disassembly. But specific on first time stuff, if it's some like a three megawatt, I mean, we're fine tooth combing that thing, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, precision measurements with the Faro. Um, you know, our, our engineering department's going to fill up the, going to fill up the, uh, the hard drives with, uh, with these super high res pictures. Um, 9,000 of them we don't need, but you know, me being an operations guy, I'm just like, what do I have to do to, you know, to get this thing rolling? But, on but on their end, on the engineering side, on the, you know, the, the, the front line guy, you know, they're, they're looking at this thing front to back, um, you know, and doing a, a, it's a, it's a process, man. It's about a two week process for one gearbox to go to, you know, first shovel, last shingle, go all the way through it make sure you have everything documented pictures, you know, sketches, uh, measurements, um, how things work, where did this come from? You know, and some of the gearboxes we have now, you have two planetary sections, right? So you have two carriers, you have two sets of planets, you know, <laughs> you might have two suns, you know, or, or a version of that. So there's a lot that goes into it and in, in trying to understand the mechanics behind it and timing and everything else. That's a, uh... That is crazy to me. Two weeks to disassemble. I actually wrote this down again because it, it almost shocked me that you're looking at the bolts and the actual material grade of the bolts. Uh, this, this might not have a, a direct answer, but have you found even in some cases looking at things as small as the bolts that those can actually be a, a cause of failure or maybe a downstream cause of failure? I, yeah, I wouldn't say. I, when you see when you see some gearboxes come in that are like blown apart, you know, you have the housings cracked, obviously stuff that's inside that, that happened that, that caused that. Right. But you start looking at like the structural, right? So the, the like structurally sound is the housing structurally sound. If you've got bolts that are holding this thing together, right. If it's a split housing, right. So it's, you know, you have a bottom and a top and everything's in between there. And some of those, the top has bores and the bottom has bores and some of those bores are split. So, the bottom of the housing and the top of the housing share a bore. The bolts that are holding that housing together, if those things aren't sound, you know, you might as well throw bread ties on there at that point. <laughs> Who cares at that point, right? I mean, right. for the guys in the field, when you're, you know, you're torquing and tension in a tower, you're doing it based on the bolts, right? The, the, the base bolts in a tower that you don't just throw a tensioner on there just for the hell of it, you have a spec and the spec is based on what that, what that bolt is, you know, can, 
can handle and clamping force for tensioning. And then for, you know, for, for torquing stuff and down, you're basing the torque value off of the fastener. It's not on the machine. The machine will snap the head off if you tell it to, you know? So it, it, it all goes down to the material that you use is I'm sure you use rated for what you're doing. And when you, you know, when you're dealing with gearboxes that there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of torque. There's a lot of force in that thing. If the, if the something simple as the bolts not holding it down, there's a problem, and that could cause a you know if, if that housing shifts just a little bit, you're talking a thousandth of an inch. You know, that's a lot to a bearing. That's a lot to a gear. You know, a thousandth of an inch. So, um, you know, you don't, I don't think you can feel it. I can't feel it. my stupid calloused fingers. You know, I can't even feel it feels like. But a, a, the gearbox is going to know exactly what that feels like, you know. And so if something's not doing its job in every every location, there's going to be a problem there. You're going to have a failure. But I love that you've you've done a deep dive even on bolts. It just it just proves out your attention to detail as an organization. Yeah. Um, and and that's one of the key things that I wanted to emphasize here. It's just even down to the bolts, which to me would be something I'd probably overlook. But then again, I'm also not VP Ops at Gearbox Express, a cutting edge uh, you know, organization in the wind space. And, and we've, we've talked a lot about Gearbox Express. It's in the name. John, I'd like to talk about uh, the main shaft remanufacturing. This is something where if you were to rank from one to 10, my level of knowledge on it, it's probably a, a, a 0.5 or lower. So could yeah. you maybe just give a quick overview of the main shaft, its role in uh, maybe the, the turbine's production of energy. And then also, how in the heck are you guys actually remanufacturing these things? Because they are massive, heavy components. Yeah. So similar to a gearbox, right? Um, the main shaft, there's, there's three components, right? You have the bearing, the bearing housing, and then the shaft itself. Um, some bearing housings come split. So you have like a top shell and a bottom shell. And then some, you just basically have a cover, uh, like a labyrinth cover. And then you have the, the, the actual housing that sits on top of that around the bearing. And then you have another cover, you know, that bolts on top or on the, you know, on the downwind side. Um, we take that, we, you know, same, same process, right? You, you get the main shaft in, whether it's inside of the gearbox's carrier, we'll pull that out. Um, you know, we'll inspect the, the mating in, the part that goes inside of the carrier. We inspect that. We measure it, make sure that it's within, you know, within the tolerance. If it's not, that, excuse me, we have measurements for that. And then we send it to a machine shop and they, they put that back within spec. Um, if it can be, right? If it's not, you have to scrap it. You have to get rid of it. And then the same thing for, for, for the journal uh, where the bearing rides on, you know. Once you take everything off in the disassembly, um, you know, you measure up that journal area, make sure that it's worthy of having a bearing roll on it <laughs> and, and be able to transfer that, you know, transfer that load from the, from the blade spinning. That shaft is what's transferring that force into the gearbox. Um, so you have to make sure all that stuff's mechanically sound. Um, same process, you know, looking at the measurements, you know, is it within specification? Um, the failure that it did have, you know, did it damage any of those surfaces? Um, you know, is there something war? I've never seen a main shaft, you know, warped, uh, you know, nothing for like a, a megawatt or higher class, but you know, who's to say it can't, right? I mean, you have to check all that stuff. Um, 
So then, you know, the, the housing comes off, you measure the housing, you measure the board of the housing, you measure the covers, make sure that everything's flat. You know, mating services are flat. If they're not, you make them flat. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, techniques to do that. Um, same with the bearing, bearing selection. You know, are you, are you using the best quality bearing for the job? Um, the bolt kit, are you, you know, do you have the right bolt kit that you need, you know, for, for what you're doing? And then, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest thing about the main shafts and that's something that we're learning, um, every, every customer does things differently, right? So if you're at, you know, site A that's in California, um, but you also own site B that's in New York, you know, those guys might be measuring something differently. They might have made, uh, they might have taken a sensor and put it, you know, put it somewhere on the housing uh, to measure, you know, the uh, PT 100, right. To measure the, the temperature uh, of the bearing or uh, hell, I don't, they might want to measure the temperature of the grease. I, I don't know. Right. Um, not everybody does the same thing. So when we see stuff come in, we see it come in from all over. We see, you know, from Canada, from, you know, from, from the U S from the, from the, you know, middle of America to the East coast to the West coast, all down South, wherever they come in, they all look differently. Right. So one of the things that we're looking at is we're looking at what is this site, you know, are they measuring temperature for a reason? Are they measuring vibration over here for a reason? Or is it, is it geographical location that's driving this? Is it just this one tower that they put some kind of, you know, CBM or, you know, condition-based monitoring on that they're looking at, like, what are they looking at? We, we don't know that backstory, right? So a lot of it's like forensics work for us. We're trying to figure out why did this one come in different than that one? And have we ever seen anyone come in like this one? Let's take a note. Let's write it down, right? And so, you know, it's, it, that, that's the fun part uh, in our process to figure out why did they put a sensor there? The OEM didn't put a sensor there, so why did they do that? And then if we see that as a repeat, we're like, okay, maybe we need to start looking into this. Did they do that because that was the failure mode? Whatever they're measuring is what what led to that bearing failure or or to that you know to that main shaft uh, the main shaft's demise. You know, we don't know. Um, so all of those things get get taken into consideration during the disassembly phase, during the re- reverse engineering phase, and then on the assembly side. When we go to put that stuff back together, we make sure we address all of those things that we noticed in the disassembly, right? So we're writing those processes as a living document. So if it's a GE 1.5 SLE main shaft, you know, we're going to make sure that we address everything as we saw it, you know, come in like this main shaft came in, it had this hole on it, you know, is the cover clocked and timed in the right position? So when we go to install it back, you know, because it gets disassembled, it gets, you know, it gets cleaned up, it gets sent out for machining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it gets reassembled. Is it going to look the exact same as it goes out? Because when I send that main shaft back out, the way that our core process works, that, that, that main shaft can be going to any SLE site, assuming, you know, that you don't own it right away, that you're not giving it to me to remanufacture it and send it back to you, right? You, you might give it to me as a core, you said, hey, I have a bad one. I give you another one. And now I own this one to do my thing with it. And then I can sell it to somebody else. But I need to make sure that, that whatever your site has, the way that I send it out can accept that. So you guys aren't up tower like, I got to put this Zerk fitting here and there's no place to put it. Where do I drill? Don't drill. Please don't drill. Please call. 
uh, you know, it could be sinking a, you know, sinking a drill bit right into a bearing or something. But, you know, we try to address all of those things because not everything that we see is the same. It could be the same model. It could be the same type. And it's, it's different. Somebody's made, you know, a fix somewhere along the way. And I think we've gotten really, really, really good at catching that type of stuff, right? We have a book and we say, it should look like this. So if it comes in different, make a note. <laughs> Figure out what was there. That, so. that is so cool. I, I love how you uh, talk about learning. It's almost like you're an investigative journalist or maybe like an undercover <laughs> cop, right? Yeah. Having to put all these pieces together, yeah. I guess pun intended here, uh, yeah. to try and identify failure modes and how can you guys improve your processes. I guess for yeah. you personally, John, being the undercover investigator that you are as the VP of ops, what lessons have you personally learned over your tenure at Gearbox Express in looking at these small, finite details? You'd mentioned uh, condition monitoring, for instance, and maybe that's a reason why somebody, there's a reason why somebody had actually installed that on their, their gearbox and you're trying to find out why. Were there any lessons that you've learned over the years by extracting those tiny pieces of information and putting them all together that you could potentially share? Yeah, I've learned that I, I think I think in my, my time as, as being on a wind farm, you know, as a as an operator, um, and then moving on this side of the house where you're more focused on like, you know, one component of a turbine. Um, I think the biggest thing that, that I found is is uh you have to maintain these things often, right? Uh most of the time when we see stuff, we see it, we see failures because um, a material breakdown. But I think that with a proper maintenance and preventative maintenance and care and just making sure that everything's working the way that it should be working when you guys are doing your, you know, your, your six month maintenances or if you do it by hour, you know, how, whatever your maintenance program is, make sure that you're just addressing the little things, right? Is the lube pump on and working? If it's a, you know, if it's two speed, does the low speed and the high speed work? You know, um, what triggers those to turn on and off, right? Is it the sensors, uh, are the temp sensors actually working to tell this thing to kick on, to kick off? You know, is the oil too hot? Is the, are, are the heater, do the heaters work? The little, you know, it's little things like that that don't require a whole lot of time or effort, um, but can save your butt. Uh, most of the stuff that we've seen here that I've learned myself is just take the extra step to take a look at it and make sure it's working because the difference between catching something right before it fails and catching something that's that we're not catching. So basically having catastrophic failure uh, is huge. The cost is enormous. Uh, the cost savings to do it preventatively are almost, almost immeasurable, Right. Um, if you say, Hey, this thing is starting to fail. I need to, I need to do something now. It is a lot better for you financially to do that, to make that decision as an owner, because the repair, the, the, the cost to repair that is a lot, a lot less than if it, that thing catastrophically fails, you crack the case, the housing cracks, you have gears that are damaged beyond repair. God forbid that that thing shook you know, shook the failure off into something else. You know, we've seen things fail, a gearbox fail and cause damage in the, in the generator. You know, there's, there's so many things that can take, that can happen, right? Uh, you have oil all over the place. That's, that's the, everyone knows 
that pain, right? And just having oil run down the tower. Um, so the, I, I think to answer your question, you know, it, it's take care of the stuff, you know, preventative maintenance, making sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to be working. And if you don't know what those things are, just ask us. Everyone has my cell phone number. You can text me. You can call me. My email address. Send me a LinkedIn. I'll answer your question. I, you know, you can talk to anybody who knows me. I'm long-winded. I know that. I get it. Uh, but I'll get you an answer. I'll get you an answer whenever you, whenever you have the question. I'll get you an answer. And if I don't know, I'll put something. I'll put somebody onto you that does know. Right. Um, but yeah, preventative maintenance, man. Take care of your stuff. Um, and understand what you're looking at. Anybody can walk past the gearbox, but do they know what they're looking at, right? So when I say preventative maintenance, you might send a technician up tower outside of, you know, a one day of training that he got when he was at, you know, whatever school he went to, or, you know, he might've been on a maintenance, he might've been on the, the, the crew that was cleaning towers for two years. He, does, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's looking at, right? That's the reality. So making sure that the guys understand what they're looking at and then maybe not know how to fix it, but know how to identify it and let someone else know so that they can, they can address those things. I think that's the main, the main point uh, uh, that I learned was preventative maintenance. It goes a long way. It goes a long way. That's a, that's a great answer. And one of my questions I wanted to ask was uh, about preventative maintenances. And actually, you know, common failure modes, you see how are they preventable? And you've answered that. It sounds like being more thorough in the way that you perform maintenance is you talked about temperature readings, uh, your pumps, all these sort of things that are very, you know, they're smaller components when you compare the dollar amount to maybe like a gearbox from an oil condition monitoring system. But it's still very important. Um, and, and I think that's something that we should really stress. And, and I'm curious, John, before we hop into the, to the rapid fire round and wrap up this podcast, I guess a couple things. You'd mentioned catastrophic failures almost being immeasurable in the amount of dollars that it can cost a company if a gearbox does catastrophically fail. Yeah. Were you to put a dollar amount on it, is there any estimate that you're willing to give? Um, in, in that regard. And then also part two would be if you're doing your preventative maintenance as well, and you're being very thorough in those maintenances, what sort of life, uh, I guess, extension can you expect from that gearbox or at least the savings that you can drive out of that? Yeah. So, I mean, to give a dollar amount, that's hard, right? Because there's different, you know, I, I had to sit here and go through every model that we, you know, from right. it tried to invest this to GE, Nordic, whatever, right? The, the, I'll put it to you like this to anybody listening that's in the financial world, right? You can put brackets around preventative maintenance, right? You can say, you can work with us, you know, we, we can put together an MSA so you have pricing known, right? So for your the asset managers out there, the FP&A guys or the ops, the ops guys that have that responsibility, Gearbox Express, we work with customers under an MSA. We also do, you know, single transactions, but the MSA is really where you can control your cost as an operator uh, and as an SA manager. We could put brackets around preventative maintenance. If you, if you have a budget that says, I can do four gearboxes this year, we can help you put brackets around that and say, that gearbox needs to be changed out this year or that bracket goes away, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> the starting point is now here. The end is, I don't know, right? 
Uh, and included in that MSA can be crane, you know, turnkey basically where, where you have something that goes wrong, you call us, we can have everything there to include the labor, the crane, all of that. We offer that service. Uh, we have great partners in the industry um, that help us, you know, that help us uh, achieve those, achieve those things. But, you know, we, preventative maintenance allows you to put brackets around cost. Uh, when you don't look at something as something catastrophically fails, when I said immeasurable, it can be completely immeasurable. You can go from, you know, having to replace a generator, you know, the main shaft, uh, some, you know, the, the blade bearings, something could happen there. You don't know, right? I mean, it, it, this thing can go haywire, right? And I don't want to be doom and gloom, but that's the reality. That is the reality of, what's, of what we see and what's happening in our industry. Um, so yeah, man, but be, be better, better, good, get a good grip on it. Understand what your costs are, understand what your risks are and make your decisions based off of that. There's a lot of guys out there, especially down in Texas that have the low power prices, right? So all of your decisions, um, unfortunately have to be finance, you know, have to be driven by finance. What do you have available to spend? If you put, if you work with us, you can put brackets around stuff and say, I can afford to do this or here's my problems help me with a solution. That's what we do. That's what we're good at. We're good at thinking outside of the box and delivering solutions, you know, for people like that. Right. So if, if you're working with a limited amount of funds, we can help put brackets around your, around your issues. And then we can start driving solutions that fit your needs. It, it might not fit everybody. It might not be the most ideal, but we can help you get out of those situations. We can be there for you when you need us to be there for you. Right. We're the experts there. We're not the experts that run on your site, but we are the experts in drivetrains. So that is uh that's fantastic. I, I love that answer. And that works, man. I actually I didn't realize too. You're getting me fired up. You're getting me fired up. Oh, we, we're both fired up, man. We might have to do part two because uh we're almost an hour in. And I Thank certainly you, don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, I, you know, you mentioned one more thing and then we'll go into the rapid fire and again wrap it up. But you mentioned turnkey. Does that mean that you're also helping to coordinate cranes? and a lot of the on-site yeah. swapping of gearboxes, for instance? Yeah, so basically what our turn, how our turnkey service works is no different than what you guys would be doing on-site, except for we, we're handling all of those logistics, right? So if you call and say, I need, you know, I want a full drivetrain in my world, right? Full drivetrain. I want a main shaft, then I want a generator, right? Typically what will happen is Gearbox Express, we already have that stuff here at inventory. So you call me and say, John, my, my SLE just failed. I need a gearbox and a main shaft. And I say, you want me to do it or do you want to do it? And you say, I want you to do it, man. I need help. It's Saturday. I want to drink beer. <laughs> I want this thing to be here on Monday morning. I say, Roger that. We go, <laughs> I pull the gearbox and main shaft. We made it here. Tighten the shrink disc and everything here. If, if you know, that's what the job calls for. Uh, we throw it on a truck. We get it headed your way. We contact the crane company, either a crane company that we partner with already, or we find a crane company in your area along with the labor. Uh, and then basically we set up at your tower and you give us the keys to the turret, to, to the tower, and we, we, we get it back online for you. Almost 100% of the time, I say almost 100%, so 99.9% .9 of the time, if you're calling us for a gearbox or a main shaft, I can beat your crane there. I don't even care if you're in Merkle, Texas, and the crane company is in Sweetwater, Texas. My truck from Wisconsin can beat your crane to the site. 
So availability is never an issue. It's never been an issue, right? Two days from everywhere for a geographical oddity. I love that. And primarily as a parts distributor at Kurz, when you say availability, yeah. everyone's ears will perk up because that is yeah. such a critical component of the industry continuously moving forward. John, I want to get into the rapid fire round. Uh, and it's a perfect segue. You mentioned Merkel, Texas. Um, yeah. I, I actually want to know a little bit more about this Merkel uh, music hall that you are yeah. a part of. Uh, and maybe talk a little bit more about your passions and time down there in Texas. Yeah, man. Uh, Merkel City Music Hall. I'm into live music. Uh, I, you know, play and sing uh, just kind of as a pastime. And uh, my wife, my wife and I were like, we're, we want to do something. You know, we want to start something. Uh, maybe get people out of the house. <laughs> yeah. Instead of instead of doing it in my garage. Uh, yeah. So so we um, we basically put together a business plan. And uh, we started the Merkel City Music Hall. It was a live, it was a live music uh, venue, um, you know, in Merkel. Uh, if you're not familiar with with the area, it's kind of right in the middle of all the wind uh, there in West Texas. And uh, yeah, man, we had we had live music um, pretty much every night. Uh, if it was a band, you know, Saturday Sunday, we had karaoke. We did you know poker runs to raise money for people. We helped some of the guys that are in wind. Um, you know, there, there was a, there was a guy, a site manager out in Snyder, Texas. He lost his wife in an automobile accident. That was like on a Thursday. Uh, I had a band come through on Friday and we raised like 12 grand for the guy that night. We were able to give it to him. You know, it's just, it, it's stuff like that. That's what we did. That was our passion. That's still my passion. Um, you know, when, when we made the decision to move up here to Wisconsin, um, you know, we, we, you know, sold the, you know, sold the, the, the music hall. But uh, I'm still involved with stuff like that. It's still near and dear to my heart. Live music and then obviously giving back. You know, whatever I can give, I, I will. And I do. Man, that, that is awesome. And of course, I have to ask the question. You'd mentioned a pastime of yours playing guitar, maybe singing. <laughs> Karaoke night. Okay, you're yeah, the last I'm, one on the stage. They say, hey, yeah. look, you got to shut this place down. Okay, yeah. rock, rock the crowd. What song are you singing? Oh, rock in the crowd? Oh, yeah. Wow. <sighs> Rocking the crowd. Yeah, and I, I'm probably, I don't know, man. I'm going to do a lot of booze for this one, but Piano Man. That's my oh, jam. Oh, yeah. That's my jam. A lot of people want me to do like Skinner or some, you know, Stapleton, stuff like that. Billy Joel, baby. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so so basically, you're committing to the to the next Kurzweil podcast. You'll open with that song, right, as the introduction? Oh man, <laughs> we'll figure something out. We might have to do that one no. late on a Friday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I might, I might need some, uh, I might need some encouragement. <clears throat> but yeah, we're good. We're good. I'll, I'll, we'll figure something out. Hundred percent. Hey, so ne- next question for you. I, I want to talk about role models because you do have yeah. a very unique background, and and obviously your passion exudes through this entire conversation. Do you have any one that you would consider your your role model or, or multiple people that you consider role models? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, role models, mentors, stuff like that, that that's a that's a that's a thing that's like kind of personal. Uh it's not it's not really driven um by any industry or or skill set, I guess you can say, because what what I look for in my role, I'll flat out say it, my role model, my mother, she's my role model. Um she's had so many life experiences, so many things 
um, that she's encountered along the way, you know, being a woman, you know, working, you know, you know, working at, you know, in, in industry, um, you know, the different things that she's lived through her life, there's so much there to gather, you know, just, I could, you know, you could sit there forever and, and still learn, you know, continue to learn from her. And I, I look up to her, man. I, I, you know, anytime I have a question about anything, she doesn't even know, she doesn't know the first thing about when, right. She, she knows what they look like. She's seen them. Right. But just in life in general, I can say, Hey, I'm really, I'm struggling to understand this concept or I'm struggling to understand this relationship with this person or, or, uh, I had a bad day, you know, this happened, you know, and not just because it's my mom, she wasn't really a coddler like, Oh, it's going to be okay. She's like, no, you have to figure this out. And this is the approach. This is what happened to me. You can take it or leave it. Right. And so I, I look up to that, man, that, you know, I, I've modeled a lot of who I am is a reflection of her. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? But that's my role model, man. My mom, I know a lot of guys have, you know, they'll say Jack Welsh or, you know, whoever, you know, whoever, right? Uh, and that's fine. And that's awesome, man. Go out and look, look after somebody and, and kind of emulate and, and gain experience through them. But in my life, it's been my mom, man. I can't, I can't ask her about a role model, man. She sets the standard and the standard's always high. And I'm always underneath it and I'm trying to hit it. You know, I try to try to hit it every day. Uh, you know, wake up early, uh, earn the sunrise and, uh, and, and try to be a better person every day. I love that. And uh, this clip might have to be sent to her. Uh, maybe we could break it off and send it to you to, uh, to, to give her a little shout out just personally. I, like that. I think that's an awesome, awesome answer. That's probably the first time that I've had an answer that where somebody said their mother. So that that's really unique too. And, and I love that. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about, you, you just said earn the sunrise, which prompts me to think about new guys getting into yeah, the, and gals getting yeah. into the wind industry. Um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are people either going to high school, college, they're going to some sort of technical institute, trying to get into wind and renewables. Do you have advice for them, you know, whether it's beating the sunrise or earning, earning the day, whatever it might be for them to set themselves up to be successful in this young industry? Yeah. Um, you know, similar to my situation when I, you know, when I came up and when, you know, basically be, be open to everything. Um, you you never know, you know, you never know what life's going to present to you. Uh, you never know what this industry is going to present to you. Um, a lot of guys don't understand that there are so many functions within wind. Yeah. Logistics guys, you got the the financial guys, you know, your your financial planners and and, uh, analysts, you have your data analysts, you know, you have, you know, asset managers, you have site guys, you know, you have specific site guys, you know, the, the major component guys, that's what they really focus in on. Um, there's so, there's so many, uh, roles out there, you know, purchasing, be a sponge. When you get the opportunity to be on a wind farm, you, you might come in contact with four or five different, completely, you know, completely different sets of skills. And they're all coming together to help that wind farm run from the purchasing guy to the asset manager, to the site guy, to the safety guy, to the technician, you know, you, you come in contact or you have the potential to come in contact with these people every day, be a sponge, learn from them. You might find yourself sitting in a chair one day 
trying to figure out financing, you know, for, for, for a new wind farm or, or on the development side, building a new wind farm, you know, or, you know, be, be a sponge, keep your options open. Just because you went to, you know, you know, a, a, some, a tech school or a four-year school or a two-year, whatever it is, uh, or you just walked on right out of high school, you walked into a wind farm, uh, be, pre- be prepared to learn something that you did not know existed, <laughs> that you did not know existed on a wind farm. Um, you know, I, I think it was, I was doing something somewhere, uh, I think it was in South Dakota. We were working with a wind farm up in South Dakota. And I learned that they had a weather guy on staff. <laughs> I was like, what? They're like, well, your fuel's in. So you, we kind of need to know when that's going to happen. And, and I'm like, oh, my God. Why didn't you think about it? This guy's a meteorologist working at a wind farm. I, I, would have never, I would have never crossed my mind as it being an option to be in the renewable space and wind and have a meteorology our meteorologist working next to me, I never crossed my mind. And, uh, you know, so that, there you go. If you're a new guy or if you're teetering on what you want to do and when, maybe, maybe climbing, climbing's not for you every day. There are so many other options out there to be in this industry and support this industry. Um, just be a sponge, man. Don't, don't close off thinking, Hey, I'm a technician. That's what I got to do. There is so much out there within the industry. So, you know, keep, keep your ear to the ground, keep your eyes open, be a sponge and, and be willing to, you know, uh, receive any information people give you. Um, it's going to be good for you, regardless if you'll never use it. At least you have that understanding of, of what they do and how they tie into the, to the process. Be a sponge. I love that. And yep. anytime somebody walks into your office, John, they'll see a lot of books on your shelves. Yep. I don't yeah. know if you still have a lot of books on your desk, but yeah. it's one of the most striking aspects of your, your office. And yeah. so you're obviously a well-read guy. What book or books would you recommend to somebody either in the industry, wanting to be in the industry, or just a general renewable enthusiast that might be listening to this podcast? What book or books would you recommend they read? So, yeah. So actually, there's three that have been on my desk for a little while right now. I'm going to grab them real quick. Um, Please do. Yeah. So for, so this one here, uh, this is the one minute manager meets the monkey. (laughs) So if you're a new manager, right. Of people, or, uh, you've been in management a while and you you're starting to, you know, you feel like you have an issue taking on too much that might not be your responsibility. Dude, this is it. This book right here is awesome to reference. You don't have to read the whole thing, but I mean, this is a, this is an airplane read. You can get this done in one flight, right? Uh, the red text on the top there, just a little, it says, uh, don't take on the problem. If the problem isn't yours, that monkey doesn't belong to you. Right. That's the, that's the, that's the basic, you know, of this book. Um, that's a good one for management. Another one, not just for management, but for employees. This is one of the things we put into our employees reviews last year. Uh, was this book, I know it's kind of rah-rah or whatever. Um, not everybody, you know, not everybody, it's not everyone's cup of tea. I understand that. This is something that, that our stat, our leadership team read here and that we made available for audio, for the audio book for our employees. So when they're on the floor um, or when they're at home, whatever, they can listen to it or they can come and grab this book for me whenever they want to. But it's extreme ownership. 
uh, it's by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. This is a great one, um, you know, for just basic leadership, but also just in general understanding. You might not be a leader per se in your company. You might be an employee. You don't have any direct reports. That's fine. Who cares? You can still be a leader, but the main thing is understanding the leadership concept, understanding where, where your leadership might be coming from. Or if you have a difficult leader that you're working with, how to deal with them. This stuff's in this book here. I, th- I think it's important. These things have been on my desk. Literally, I flip through them at least once a day. Um, you know, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a religion. Um, and then this one is a Lean Six Sigma for service. So, you know, just uh, I got some notes in here. This was given to me by a guy Jeff Gibbons. I worked with him at uh, AES, and then he went on to EDF, and then he went back to AES. Uh, he works with Fluence. Right, so they're not in wind per se, but uh, he's the vice president of operations for their um, battery storage. Right, so they rival like Tesla. Pretty cool stuff. Cutting edge. But he he gave me this book when we worked together uh, when I worked for uh, for AES in Palm Springs, California. He gave me this book and I referenced it. I did not know. I thought this was seriously going to go somewhere on the bottom somewhere. I I look at this thing more than I think I should or more than I thought I would rather. I should look at it a whole lot more probably. But those those three books right there, those are on my desk currently. I have a footlocker underneath that desk over there. It's got a bunch more books from grad school that I do look at. Um, I, I, I reference, you know, when I get into an issue with, uh, you know, trying to understand certain processes in business. But um, those three books, they're on my desk. You've been to our shop. Um, the 33 people that work here, know that they can come in here and get these books at any time. They can come get them from me. I've had a couple guys come pick them up and flip through them or ask me, you know, what's a good chapter to read or whatever. And, and they're always in here. They're, they're here for everyone to grab, man. So it's a public library. <laughs> I love that. And, and after this call, John, I want to get the list of those books. I try to jot them down uh, yeah. quickly, but my handwriting is brutal uh, when I'm writing quickly. So we'll put those in the show notes. Yeah, I really should. Honestly, I've got Word doc pulled up here, but uh, didn't think of it. And and just as a little side note, I saw on your LinkedIn, you're a green belt in Sigma Six. Yep. So when I did some digging, I thought, oh, this guy's a jujitsu fan, you know, but little <laughs> did I know Sigma Six is completely different from uh, from jujitsu. But anyways, I, I think that's really cool that you're willing to share those books. And, and I'm learning honestly from you. And, and I definitely want to pick up all three of those myself. The extreme ownership I actually have on my uh, in my my library here. And I read it quite some time ago. I've been a big fan of the Jocko podcast. Him and Echo Charles, if you listen to that, um, it's actually one of the inspirations for me to start this podcast here. Yeah. So I love that you referenced that. I definitely want to make it a priority to Reread now, John. Last question might be the most difficult question uh, of the day. You're in Wisconsin. The Green Bay uh-huh. Packers looked pretty dang sharp uh, this this past weekend. If you were a betting man, if who's winning the Super Bowl? Oh man, uh, stumped you. <laughs> yeah, First I'm a Tampa Bay guy. I really, I really, actually, I had a hard hat here with Tampa Bay on it. Um, we, we've had our issues since 2002. Uh, we draft kickers in the first round, stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I think Green Bay's got too many holes on the offensive line. Like at the, uh, you know, at the championship level, I don't think they'll be able to pull it off. 
Uh, Bakhtiari was a stud on the, as a left tackle. He's not going to be there to protect Aaron, um, which I think is going to be a problem um, with whoever they face, you know, going forward. Um, I got to ju- – it sucks, man. I got to default to Kansas City. I, I don't see them losing anytime soon. I really don't, man. Andy Reid's a stud uh, play caller. Um, I don't know if you know who their quarterback is, but his name's Patrick Mahomes. And he's pretty good. He's all right. <laughs> he's pretty good. And they got some, uh, they have some of the fastest guys I think I've ever seen uh, on the gridiron. And uh, they all, they all do their thing and they do it really well. Um, so yeah, I don't see Kansas City losing anytime soon. I hope I'm wrong because Green Bay uh, needs to lose uh, and Tampa Bay needs to win. And then we need to go to the promised land once again. <laughs> I don't think. In reality, I don't think that's going to happen. But um, yeah, man, I see. I see Kansas City being hard to beat. That's I hate saying that. God, I hate saying that. But I, I think that's what's going to end up happening. You got to remember who the Bucks quarterback is. TB twelve. Might that's I right. remind you, the Atlanta yeah. Falcons, twenty eight to three in the fourth <laughs> quarter. When you've got TB twelve quarterback in the ball for you coming down the stretch, anything can happen. So there's a lot of hope. And actually, the the initial teaser lines, if you know, hypothetically, we were betting men. I think it was minus three for Green Bay. So Vegas is calling this a closer game than than a lot of people would anticipate. So hopefully, yeah. the uh, the Bucks can pull this out. The, the only thing that I fear is that weather. Uh, the weather is is. Uh, I don't know how, how the guys down in Tampa Bay are going to play. I know that they have two, you know, there's two players um, that can deal with that weather. It's Tom Brady and Gronk. Uh, you know, both played in crap weather up in New England. Um, but I, 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 I don't know, man. It's such a, it, you never know, man. Anytime anybody goes into Green Bay, it's like, it's like they, they lose their playbook. They don't know what's going on. They're <laughs> you know, I mean, what? <laughs> okay, whatever. You know, now, now we're playing by, you know, Aaron Rodgers, you know, fake play call rules and all that crap. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt that Green Bay always has like 12 or 13 players, right? So they have the 11 that are wearing football uniforms, and then they have at least two that have uh, black and white on their, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. They seem to always be in the way and in favor of Green Bay. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. I was up at Green Bay to watch the Raiders get walloped by the Packers. And and if you watch the game back, it was that game. Last were you year. really? Yeah. Yeah. No, no way. I swear to God, I got pictures somewhere. I'll have to send them to you. I'll send them to you. I actually went with our buddies over at Invenergy. Uh, we That's went and saw the game from a box. It was great. It was a pu- beautiful day for the time yeah. of time of year in Green Bay. It was awesome to watch. That was but awesome. not great to watch the Raiders get walloped. No. As I no. said, but I think Aaron Jones had like three or four tutties. Aaron uh, Aaron Rodgers threw for five or six touchdowns. I mean, it was a complete offensive I think, showcase. I think things went downhill. Derek Hill got like intercepted. Uh, Derek, Derek Derek Carr intercepted, and then it was just downhill from there. It was fun. I was we were sitting on the Green Bay side, and but it was fun looking over at John Gruden, you know, across the field, <laughs> just getting fired up. Charles Woodson was walking in front of us. That was pretty cool. Um, and then Coon, he was an old fullback for, for Green Bay. He was down on the field there. Um, yeah, it was awesome, man. That was a sweet game. That was the first time I'd ever been uh, to Lambeau. 
So I, my son, uh, you know, we, we kind of like the Raiders. Um, they're in another conference. I'm a Tampa Bay guy, but, you know, John Gruden, he took us there in 02. So against his Raiders, oddly enough. So, yeah, that was a good game, man. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I have to show you. The, the best part about that game is that I've, I've always seen Raiders games on TV, but the black hole was there. Yes. In the black hole there. Seeing them in person, dude, they, they are committed. They are freaking committed. They, with the spikes and the full body paint and the thing, I mean, I was like, these, these guys here, they're, they're legit, man. They travel hard. That's a, that's a solid fan base. It's a solid fan base, similar to the Bucks fan base. Honestly, we're both patiently waiting for, for our time to come. <laughs> so we can suffer together. And John, last thing, and then I want to definitely plug you guys, you personally, Gearbox Express, how they find you. Uh, but it sounds like our next business meeting, and hopefully some of the Kerr's leadership is listening in today. Uh, maybe, sounds like our next meeting should be at a Lam- at Lambeau Field, watching a, a Packer game. What do you think about that? I, I'm not going to argue with you. You know, at the end of the day, football's football, man. There's two sports. It's uh, football and spring football. So <laughs> I'll sign up for either. I love it. John, I appreciate the time today. For, uh, for people who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, so uh, you can go to our website, uh, gearboxexpress.com. Um, you can find us on uh, LinkedIn, on Twitter. Um, me personally, it's john.mckay. So J-O-H-N dot M-C-K-A-Y at gearboxexpress.com. Um, and yeah, you know, you can drop me an email. Um, if you already have my cell phone number, call me, text me. If you, if you want it, send an email and then, then I'll vet you. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I'm giving that thing out to just anybody, man. You got all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> I believe it. According to the the seven missed calls that I've had during this podcast, they're all about my extended warranty uh, now yeah. being over. So, so we'll make sure we protect your phone number, John. I'll definitely put all the contact info in the uh, the show notes below the the show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, so you can find this episode everywhere, John. Once again, man, this this has been a super enjoyable conversation. Your passion yeah. exudes through the the podcast here and the conversation that we've had. I just really appreciate you coming on it, and best of luck with you uh, here in 2021 with your business. Yeah, thanks, Dan, man. I appreciate it, and and uh, good luck to you guys uh, in 2021 with with the podcast and with Kurs. And uh, you know, I wish you guys nothing but the best, man. And everybody out there listening, man, if you're not in win and you're thinking about getting in win. Um, it's a, it's an awesome industry, man. It's really taking care of me and my family. And, and, uh, if you're in win, man, keep chugging, keep them spinning, keep them ginning. Keep them spinning, keep them ginning. And with that, John, we're going to sign off. Go TB12, go Bucks. Go Bucks, man. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>